0: Some of you will identify that there are times that you have been in strange environments when you have had to seek direction from others as to where to go. And it's good to be in a strange city and find somebody who's going to give you precise direction and tell you go down the particular street. When you go two blocks, you turn right, and the building is right there on your left. We want to have precise directions. There are times when you go to places where the direction is not very clear. If you've ever been to the Caribbean and particularly to places like Jamaica, you ask direction at least in the country areas at your own peril. You go up to somebody and you say, well, where is the nearest grocery store? And they will tell you, just around the corner. And you know, you will walk seven, eight miles and pass many corners before you find that grocery stores just around the corner we want precise directions and the passage before us in the epistle of paul to the romans provides us with precise direction with regards the way to salvation it answers a basic simple basic question how is a man or woman saved In chapter 10 of Romans, we find Paul discussing this whole matter of the salvation of Israel. There is an issue for the apostle Paul, and the issue is why is it that the Jews, his own people, are not saved? And he begins to answer this question in chapter 9, saying to them that ultimately salvation is by the decision of God. By the electing choice of God. That's the main premise of chapter 9. In chapter 11, he will say to them that God has not forsaken his people entirely. There is an election, or there is an elect or a remnant according to the election of grace. But in chapter 10, particularly in the passage we were looking, the apostle Paul says that his concern is for the Jewish people. Not only for them exclusively, but also his concern about his own people. And he says, beginning in chapter 10, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. He's concerned about his own nation. But he lays the blame for their not attaining salvation squarely upon their shoulders. And in essence, he says that the reason that the Jews are not saved, it is not... So much a matter of God's electing choice, though that is true. That the blame for them not to be saved is because they have neglected, they have rebelled against God's way of salvation, that is the way of righteousness by faith, and have sought to establish their own righteousness. They have gone out seeking to work their way into the kingdom of God by obeying the law. And the apostle reminds them, that even when they read Moses, Moses has been clear that there is only one way of salvation, the way of faith, that righteousness comes by faith. In verse 6 he says, But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that he might bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the word of faith which we preach. He's saying that, he's quoting of course, or alluding to Deuteronomy 30. And he's saying that even in the Old Testament, Moses has already made it clear that salvation is by the way of faith. That was already said by Moses. And he said that this is essentially the message he proclaimed. Now in verse 9, the heart of the passage, 9 and 10, he explains then this message that Moses brought to Israel and that he brings. Regarding salvation. He says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I want to suggest that this, the text before us lays out two prerequisites for salvation. How is a man or woman saved? First of all, the text says that one must confess That Jesus Christ is Lord to be saved. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The term confess is homologia. It literally means to say the same thing. To be in agreement with God. Homologia. To say the same thing. To acknowledge then. It means that one must acknowledge verbally that Jesus Christ is Lord. And this confession of Jesus Christ as Lord is central to the biblical Christian faith. It was amongst the earliest statements by the early church. The early church professed that Jesus Christ is Lord. And you see something of this in Peter's first sermon in Acts chapter 2 when he preached by the inspiration of the, or the help and unction of the Spirit. Peter could say in Acts 2.36. Therefore, summing up his sermon. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly. That God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Christ. Right there in the first sermon in Acts. He calls him Lord and Messiah. In second. Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, Paul says, For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your burnt servants for Jesus' sake. This term, Lord, curious, we are told occurs some 6,000 times in the Old Testament. It is used in the Old Testament At least in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew, for Yahweh, for the Lord. To confess then that Jesus Christ is Lord is to confess first and foremost that he is a sovereign God. We need to remember that the writers of the New Testament did not loosely call Jesus Lord. They did not call him Lord in an honorific sense as a title of honor. Even in the British Commonwealth, there are people who are called Lords. Lord Black, for instance. Lord So and so. It's an honorific title, a title of nobility. But this title is not given to Christ in this sense. It is a title that was used for God Himself. And therefore, to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord is to associate and identify Jesus Christ, who was born in a major. With the god of the old testament the new testament commentator cranfield says that the declaration that jesus christ is lord means he shares the name the nature the holiness the authority the power the majesty and eternity of the one and only true god to confess that jesus christ is lord is to identify and to acknowledge him as god that he is a sovereign lord And the Apostle Paul tells the believers in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians 8, 5 and 6, he says, For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God the Father, of whom are all things and we of him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we live. For the Apostle Paul. Though there are many people who may have the title Lord, only the Lord Jesus Christ is Lord in the sense that he is divine. Human beings do not have this title in this sense he is a sovereign Lord, the one who rules in majesty. To call him Lord, to confess him Lord not only means he is a sovereign Lord, but it means that he is divine. The universal Lord. He he is not the one who rules chiefly over a particular domain, but He rules over all. In the very passage where we are in Romans 10, the writer will go on to say, For there is no distinction between Jews and Greeks, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon Him. We read in texts like Romans 14, verse 79, For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and rose again and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. Jesus Christ, you see, to confess him as Lord, means he's a sovereign. The king who rules. But he's also the universal Lord who rules over all. And to confess him as Lord is to also commit. This matter of confessing Christ as Lord is not merely a verbal statement, though that is true. The the, the Greek term homologia does carry the sense of committing. So it is not merely that one admits that Jesus Christ is Lord, states it verbally, but that one commits. In other words, one recognizes that Jesus Christ is the Lord, that he is God, that he is King. And one understands that he stands in a relationship with this king. That God is king. That Christ is God. That he is king. And that we are not. That Christ is Lord. And we are not lords. We are his servants. And as such we submit to him and his rule. We commit to him in faith, in dependence. You see, to, to say that Jesus Christ is Lord means I have submitted to him. I have embraced his lordship. I have understood myself to be his servant, and I give to him my fealty, my loyalty, and my allegiance. And my confidence rests in him. You see, to confess Christ as Lord means to confess him as the gracious Lord. Whom Paul tells us in Romans, that he is the Lord who brings peace between us and God, the Father. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That he is the gracious Lord who brings us eternal life. For we read in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through our Lord Jesus Christ. It is he who brings us eternal life. It is he who reconciles us, brings us in a relationship with God. It is he through whom God's inseparable love for us is displayed. So Paul could say that there are not a height or depth or created things. None of these shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It is in Christ that we have come to know the Lord, the Lord, and to know His love. So to confess Christ as Lord means that we are committed to Him. We acknowledge Him as our God, and we commit to Him as our Lord. This this confession of Christ must be understood to be a supernatural thing. It's a work of grace. Paul says in writing to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 12 verse 3, no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed. And no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Let me tell you what Paul is not saying. Paul is not saying that it is impossible for anyone to go around and say Jesus Christ is Lord verbally. That is clearly would not be true. Any person can say verbally, outwardly, Christ is Lord. But no one can say truthfully and meaningfully. No one can say from the heart where one commits to him that Christ is Lord unless one has been quickened and given grace, changed, transformed by the Holy Spirit. So we need to understand that to, to acknowledge Christ as Lord and to commit to him is first of all a supernatural work of God. The first direction then, given, is that one must confess Christ as Lord. Secondly, rapidly, not only does the text tell us that in order to be saved one must confess Christ, it also teaches us that one must believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Let's read again Romans chapter 10 and verse 9 and 10. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the mouth one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth, or with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So one must confess Christ as Lord. Secondly, one must believe in the resurrection of Christ. We need to understand that these two things, confessing Christ as Lord and believing in his resurrection, are not two different steps, are not two different things. The confessing of Jesus Christ as Lord and therefore Master and God, and believing in one's heart that he is raised from the dead, are one and the same thing. They are essentially two sides of one coin. Well, what's the connection? What's the relationship between outward confessing and believing in your heart that Christ has been raised from the dead? The outward confession or confession is an outward sign of faith. But believing is the inward sign of faith. They work together. So that when one believes in one's heart, one speaks outwardly that Christ is the resurrected Lord. They work together. And you will find that Jesus himself connects speaking with one's mouth and believing in one's heart. Where he says in Luke 6.45, A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good. And an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. The reason one confesses Christ as Lord is first because one has come to believe that he is the resurrected Christ. To be saved, then one must believe and one must confess. But listen, salvation requires faith, but faith is not a leap in the dark. It is not the garden leak in the dark. It is faith, faith based upon substance, upon content, upon evidence, and the evidence that faith receives as true is that God raised Jesus from the dead. But we serve a risen and a living Christ. You see, the was Paul as if a man is to be saved, he must believe in the heart. The heart which is the center of our universe. It is the place of emotion and volition. It is the place of thinking and reasoning. It is the place of decision. In other words, it is the center or the control tower of our, our lives. When the writer of Proverbs says, My son, give me thy heart. He's not asking for a piece of these people. He's asking for all of them. God is asking for all. Give me your heart means give me the center of your being. And in our hearts, internally, in our minds, with mind, will, and emotion, we must embrace the truth of Christ's resurrection from the dead. The testament emphasizes this. And we will speak later this evening about this resurrection. But in 1 Corinthians fifteen one to 3 Paul says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which you receive and in which you stand, and by which you are saved, if you hold fast the word that which I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, That he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. In 1 Corinthians 6.14 he says, And God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Here in the book of Romans, Paul argues that Christ possesses post-mortem life. Life after death. That he was raised as the first fruit of those who sleep. He was raised from the dead. He tells us a number of things about our Lord's resurrection. He reminds us that our Lord was raised and that in his resurrection, he can never die again. He says death has no more dominion over him in Romans 6 verse 9. He says that the resurrection of Christ guarantees our justification, our acceptance before God as those who have been declared righteous before his law. In talking about Abraham's faith that was credited to him, he said, Now it was not written for his sake alone, it was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him, who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Paul tells us that our Lord's resurrection from the dead is proof that he has accomplished justification. That his death on the cross has paid for our sins against God and satisfied the law of God. And where God is concerned, legally, we are free. He wants them to know that it is with the risen Christ that they are united. They were buried with him as we saw in baptism. They were buried with him in baptism and were raised from the dead with Christ Christ. By the glory of the Father. So resurrection then is a sign. or the, the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ points to our union with the risen Christ. This resurrection of Christ is the prototype of all resurrection. For Paul could tell the Romans in chapter 8 verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. So the resurrection of Christ is a harbinger, a sign that one day we too will be raised and raised physically. Fundamentally friends, believing in Christ as resurrected from the dead means we believe in God's saving work in history. That the Christian faith is not a historical. It's not outside of history. It is within the the, the contours, the matrix, the environment of history. That God has acted by sending his son who has come and died on the cross. And has been raised from the dead as proof positive that his sacrifice was accepted. And all who believe in Christ. All we are told in our text. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, if you believe in a risen, living Christ, you will be saved. This term, saved, is an assurance that by believing and confessing Christ as risen, that one receives, the result is a certainty of salvation. It's an iron, ironclad guarantee from God. If you confess with your mouth, if you believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It is predictive future. The Apostle Paul can talk about salvation in the three tenses. We were saved in hope, he says. In Romans 8, we were saved, that's a past act. He could say, in the present tense, we are being saved. And that being saved is a reference to sanctification. When you are saved, when you trust the Lord Jesus Christ, then God's Spirit works in you to change you, to sanctify you, so that ultimately, you and I will be like Christ. We are being saved. The language then is of sanctification. But here, he talks about eschatological salvation, salvation at the end of time. You will be saved if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ. If you believe in your heart, you will be saved. I haven't got time to develop this, but let me say that in in Romans, salvation is seen essentially in two ways. Salvation is seen first as salvation from wrath. One is first of all saved from the wrath of God. Paul tells the Romans in verse 18 of chapter 1 that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness of men and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. Why is God's anger revealed against humanity? Because we have not received God's revelation. We suppress his truth. We were not thankful, nor did we glorify him. We did not worship him, but we worship idols. And the wrath of God is revealed. In chapter 2 of Romans, Paul says that those who are rebellious, that is those who refuse to surrender to Christ, are treasuring up, are storing up wrath. So you know, you, you open a bank account, a saving account. But what you are saving, what you are keeping In safety for the future is wrath, God's wrath. You see, the the one who is recalcitrant, who refuses to surrender to Christ, the Bible says he's storing up for the day of judgment the wrath of God. So Christ comes and he saves us. Salvation is being saved from the wrath of God. In Romans 5, the Apostle Paul makes this clear. He says that we have been saved from wrath. We're delivered from the wrath of God. In in chapter one, in in chapter five, he makes this very clear that believers who trust in the Lord are saved from wrath. But salvation, according to Paul in Romans, is not only negatively so that one is delivered from wrath at the end of the age. Salvation is positive. It is salvation for glory. Salvation is, first of all, from wrath. But salvation is for glory. And we see this as the Apostle Paul makes very clear in chapter 5, 1 and 2. He says, through him also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of glory. You see what God promised in salvation is glory. is to share his existence. What he promises is that we will be with him. And in Romans 8, Paul says, if we suffer with him... We shall also be glorified with him. So salvation is from wrath and salvation is for glory. But here is a promise. If we confess with our mouths, if we believe in our hearts, we shall be saved. And the rest of the passage, at least to verse 13, draws upon Old Testament scripture. Making the same point that there has only been one way of salvation whether it is by Moses, or by Joel, or by Isaiah the prophet in chapter 28, 16, wherever you look in the Old Testament, in whatever division of the Old Testament, there's only been one way of salvation. That those who trust in the Lord will be saved. And you see the refrain in verse 13, for whoever calls upon the name of the Lord, is the same thing as believing and trusting, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I want you to know, my friends, As I draw this to a conclusion that at the end of the day, you and I need to know that God is a saving God. That he's in the business of changing men and saving them from eternal damnation. And regardless of how sinful we have been and to the depths we have been, God is able to find us, to search for us and to deliver us. He's able to pardon all our sins. You need to know that this morning there is true forgiveness. There is true deliverance from the wrath of God. That you can be in a reconciled relationship with him. But you must come to the fountain and drink freely from the fountain of life. You must buy milk and wine without money and without price. You must receive the salvation that God offers to you. And he offers to you freely by grace. But you need to know that salvation comes to us by faith alone. By faith alone. For some, this is far too simple. Salvation by faith alone, in Christ alone, too simple. I think of the story of Naaman, who was a general in the army of the Syrians. In 2 Kings 5, the king of Syria sends a letter to the king of Israel. And it's a very sharp letter. It begins something like this. Can you imagine, no good morning, how are you doing? It begins this way. Be advised, I'm sending my servant Naaman to you, that you may cure him of his leprosy. Naaman was a leper. There was no cure in those days for leprosy. Be advised, I'm sending my servant Naaman to you that you may cure him of his leprosy. Well, what would you do with a little like that? The king of Israel was very angry. He got up and tore his garment, a sign of grief, of extreme anger. And he says, am I in the place of God? Do I give life and do I take life? This man has sent his servant to me for me to cure him of leprosy. He says, do you see how this man is picking a fight with me? But there was a prophet in Israel whose name was Elisha and so Naaman was sent to Elisha and when Naaman came to Elisha Elisha didn't go out to meet him he, come, he arrives at, at, at Elisha's door in his chariot with his horses in great pomp but Elisha doesn't go out he sends his servant he says go tell Naaman go down to the Jordan and wash deep seven times and you will be clean and Naaman was very annoyed, very angry. He says, I thought this fellow would come out to me. He would call on the name of the Lord. He will wave his hand over the spot where the disease is on my body, and then I would be clean. He says, Aren't there greater rivers in Damascus than the Jordan? He was very angry and he stormed off in anger. But his servant was a wise man. He comes to Naaman and he says to him, My father. If the prophet had told you to do something great, wouldn't you have done it? How much more he tells you, wash and be clean. All he was asked to do was to go and take a bath. Just go down to the river, dip seven times. But it was too simple. And for us today, there are many who think it is too simple. We've got to work our way up to God. We've got to do penance. We've got to do good works to to get into God good books. But that's not what the Lord calls for. It is simply looking and believing, relying, trusting upon the provision of God for our salvation. It is by faith alone. It is simply resting, relying, trusting Christ. It leads me then to say to you, but ultimately faith the faith that saves has one object which is Christ. You see it is not faith as I've said it many times it is not faith per se which saves but it is the object of faith which saves. And the object of faith is Christ. It is by looking to Christ who paid for our sins who died and rose and who now lives. It's by trusting in him. It's by saying, not what my hands have done, but what you have done, Lord, can I be ever saved. It is by trusting and relying on Christ. The object of faith must be Christ. There was a lecturer who was an atheist. and One day he gave a lecture to the public and he invited all and sundry to listen to the lecture. And basically the lecture was an hour or so of tearing apart Christianity and running down the Lord Jesus Christ, dismissing him. At the end of the lecture, he called, he was very confident, very learned man. He called for anyone who had questions to come to the front. Nobody moved. But eventually, a man came to the front. He was a converted alcoholic. And he came to the front where the mic was, took out of his pocket an orange and began peeling it. And he peeled the orange, took his time too, and peeled the orange. And then he began eating. And of course, the professor was rather annoyed. And eventually he said, is there a question anywhere in all of this? But the man kept on eating until he had finished the orange. And then he said, tell me, was the orange sweet or sour? Well... You can imagine how annoyed and frustrated this professor was. He says, how can I know if the orange was sweet or sour if I never tasted it? And the converted alcoholic says, how can you dismiss Christ if you have never tasted him? Some things can only be learned by experience. And you can never truly know God Until you have come to taste and to see that he is good. And blessed is the man who puts his trust in him. That in the word of Jonathan Edwards, a great great scholar and Pudent theologian. He says there is safety and sweetness and refreshment in Christ. And so I call upon you today. To look to Jesus Christ, to simply look, to believe, to trust in him that, the, that his death on the cross was acceptable to God for all of your sins and that he is now risen and stands as a guarantee that you can never be condemned because his blood speaks better things than the blood of Abel. What must you do? You must confess Jesus. You must confess him to your friends and to your family. You must confess him publicly in baptism. Why? Why is it necessary? Hear the words of Jesus. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. In Matthew ten thirty-two and 33. You must confess Christ. You must confess him that not only is he Lord, but he is your Lord. You must confess him because one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to the glory of God that Jesus Christ and he alone is Lord. Here and now in this very room and this very Sunday morning, you ought to say Christ is my Lord. I trust him. I give him myself and I look to the day when I will see him in blazing glory. Will you believe? Will you trust? Simply a look to Christ the crucified. Simply a look to Christ the risen Savior. Simply a calling on his name. And relying upon his finished work. A relying upon the risen Christ. And God will blot out all of your sins here and now for the rest of your life. That's an offer you cannot beat. I trust by the grace of God you receive it by faith for Christ's sake. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord, we confess that you are Lord and that you are God. We confess that you are sovereign in heaven. You're the King of glory and you're the Lord, our gracious Savior, who died for us. We affirm that there is none greater than you are. And we also offer ourselves to you. We thank you for your death for us on the cross. We thank you for shedding your blood. And we praise you who are the risen Savior who lives for us, who died for our sins and lives for us. We pray for those who have gathered here who do not know you, that they might come simply by looking and resting upon you. And we pray for those who this morning have witnessed to their faith in you, that you would strengthen them and guard them from the onslaught of the evil one, that they might wage a good warfare, that they may have a good confession before men. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.